Six presidents ago, Ronald Reagan being the 40th president and serving two consecutive terms during the 1980s, said the following words that challenge our view of God as a country, even more so today. He said, I believe with all my heart that standing up for America means standing up for the God who has blessed our land. We need God's help to guide our nation through stormy seas, but we can't expect him to protect America in a crisis if we just leave him over on the shelf in our day-to-day living. It's Saturday, November 20th, 2021, and today we're discussing the following top stories. Where is the vaccine mandate court case headed? How the transgender ideology is being forced upon the young minds? The insights into the border crisis in Belarus? And the catastrophic flooding in the Pacific Northwest? Welcome to LifeRing, a podcast where we strive to provide you with a well-rounded review of what is going on in the world between Monday and Friday of this past week. My name is Alex, and I am joined today by my co-host, Vadim. Hi, Vadim. Hello. What have you been up to, man? Well, it's that time of year, and a lot of exciting stuff happening. Just last night, actually, we got together with our youth, and we're packing shoeboxes for Operation Christmas Child, so really exciting stuff. How does that work? Because I know we've talked in the hallway in the past. And well, it's, I mean, it's a huge operation. We just do a small part of it. There's people that go and like, uh, like scout out remote, remote regions in the world mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, of like impoverished villages and things like that. They take data on like, you know, how many kids are there? What are their ages? And then they report back to the, I guess, the missionary base where they're like, oh, you know, this is this is a place that we can send out shoebox presents um, at Christmas time. And so people like us have an opportunity to pack a box full of gifts. Um, Mm -hmm. You can write a little message, um, you know, a short prayer for them. Um, And then, you know, like you should see these videos of of these kids unboxing them. Like it's 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 delightful. And and you've been doing this for like multiple seasons now, right? Yeah, I think I think I think as a as a church we've been doing it for probably yeah, 4 or 5 years. 4 or 5 years. Yeah. Well, that's exciting. That's nice. What's new with you? I think you could summarize the week by the floods that we've had in the area. Mm. I think that was kind of on the forefront of not that I was personally concerned about it, you know, we've although in the flood area we're not I think in danger of that. We have this neat system that the city of Mount Vernon where we live built around the river mm-hmm. so that as it rises because we've got dikes all around that I guess has been there forever. But then in downtown, it's lower than the dikes. So they had to build this system. Yeah, that, that wall came in clutch this yeah. week, honestly. Yep. And it was a lot of water on the sidewalk where you'd usually take a stroll with the kids. So, But overall, it was a fine week. Just another week in Pacific Northwest. All right. Well, let's dive into the top four. So my main story today will be about uh, circuit courts, uh, specifically about where the vaccine mandate case is heading. But before that, let's touch on a few things that are in the same backyard. Uh, Well, how about them booster shots? I think you mentioned it last time, you know, what will happen if you get booster shots? What, What happens to the whole fully vaccinated Well, yesterday, my wife showed me an interesting situation unfolding. So his White House uh, posted on Instagram that FDA, as of yesterday, Friday, approved the booster shots. And now they're available for all adults in the U.S. What was peculiar to me is that in the comments, as long as you could notice, as long as you could scroll, and she kept scrolling, Mm -hmm. all you saw was uh, nope, nope, no way or no thank you messages. Like, people aren't really excited about this. And you would expect them to be too because of the season. Not really. 
And I don't know if you can judge the public opinion based on Instagram, but for some reason it was almost unanimous. At least uh, 10 states were actually already proactively ahead of this announcement, so that means governors. Um, Why does this matter? Well, for the conservative segment of this nation, October and November have been a time of trials. Many have lost their jobs and decided to take a stand. Uh, Much more people, though, considered the issue inconsequential. We didn't have to wait long, and just like you said, a new debate emerges. How do we define, quote-unquote, fully vaccinated? So new Mexico governor, for example, and Connecticut governor, they said that you already, in their states, are not fully vaccinated until you've received the booster shot at this point. And in the next few weeks, we probably will hear a new public health order in relation to that. The UK as a country has already said that as of this past Monday, fully vaccinated means you got to have all your boosters, which at this point is only three vaccines. How many do you think have received the booster shot so far in US? I think I've seen that. It's something like 20%, right? Yeah, 17%. Yeah. I think this is a sign that the goalposts have officially moved like since the original goal of being fully vaccinated, I guess. I don't know if it's just me, but this week was the first time I saw anyone uh, making a distinction between data of people that have been vaccinated and people that have been boosted, quote-unquote. Mm-hmm. Numbers should have been much higher at this point, and they're not. So people are not specifically rushing to, to get these shots. But and you might hear this other argument that, you know, this is all temporary. The end is just around the corner, which, to be honest, sounds like Trump. I was reviewing what he said in relation, right, to initially denying the fact that this would become anything more than just a few cases. I'm not sure about that. I think that not only is there a big difference, I think those two statements are pretty much opposite of each other. I mean, with Trump, you had him kind of downplaying this impending sense of disaster, which is he meant to diminish like what what turned out to be and continues to develop as a overreaction and draconian measures. And on the other hand, um, you have people overemphasizing the effectiveness of, of the measures they're taking and the policies they're, they're introducing, I guess, maybe to shame people into complying because like it's you're kind of already setting up a scapegoat in the sense that you're like, oh, what we're about to do will work if everybody complies. And if you don't, then, you know, you're the reason it didn't work. The difference is that Trump can claim a certain level mm-hmm. of ignorance, um, whereas these celebrities in their lab coats, they all their credibility is built basically on this uh, thing unfolding the way they predicted it. Yeah, on yeah. their on their vaguely justified yeah. expertise. So this question of the vaccine mandate has some serious implications. Uh, it opened the door to government regulating your health, and here's why it's such a concern. So, what's this main circuit story that circuit court story that I mentioned in the beginning? Well, here's the headline from this past week. Challenges to Biden-OSHA vaccine mandate assigned to appeals court in Cincinnati. And then here's another headline. Conservative-leaning appeals court to hear challenges to Biden's vaccine mandate after ping-pong ball lottery. Now, guess which one is conservative news headline versus liberal? I guess, like, the invoking of the term ping-pong ball, I guess that sounds pretty casual. So I'm guessing... They're trying to make it seem illegitimate. So that's probably the liberal one. Yep. Yeah. That's from CNN versus Fox. The first one was from Fox News. Anyway, so here are the facts. On Tuesday, through random drawing, the fate uh, to review the slew of cases regarding the mandate fell on the Sixth Circuit Appeals Court. Now, if you're like me, you'd probably say, okay, that sounds like something is going to be moving forward. And that's about all I understood from, from when I first read it. Why are they drawing a lottery on it? Um, what does it mean going forward? What's up with the circuit courts? How does that relate to Supreme Courts, in courts in general, and so on? So 
what I'm about to do is a quick rundown of how it works and hopefully will help you learn something in the next few minutes or so. Now, we've got your regular municipal courts, right? And we've got county courts. And then there's the state Supreme Courts. But for cases and trials with federal implications, we have 94 district courts. For example, in the state of Washington, we have two, Eastern and Western District, right? In Idaho, they have only one because the state is small. So you have 94 districts across the whole United States and its territories. Now, a district court can, you know, take care of most questions. They can hold trials, impose penalties, and so on. So that's your district courts. However, there comes a point when the decision uh, made in a district court is important enough that someone files for an appeal to the next level of courts. And so that would be the circuit courts. For example, in Washington, we're part of the Ninth Circuit, which encompasses seven states, Washington, Idaho, Montana, Oregon, California, and Nevada, Arizona, and Alaska. Did I say seven? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. It's eight states. So Ninth Circuit encompasses all of these coastal states, if you will. Now, we have 12 circuits in the U.S. So if you will, you know, imagine a map and it's divided into these 12 areas, right? And then finally, if someone makes an appeal and reaches the attention of Supreme Court, then the case would be reviewed by this final boss court, right? Like the final stage, if you will. Does that make sense so far? Kind of. So there's district courts, which is um, like you might have a couple in a state and then... Circuit court is like collect is kind of like collectives of states. Correct. And so there's only a few in the country, like twelve. Twelve of them. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then after that is the Supreme Court. Absolutely. Okay. Yep. So it's like three levels. But then I guess if you're not counting the regular courts level, because regular courts don't handle federal cases. Right. Like county and municipal courts. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Those would be like your regular stuff. But federal uh, on a federal level, you have these three. Three levels of courts. Now, according to Diffin, which is a cool website, kind of like Wikipedia, apparently, that explains all of this, these 12 circuit courts are very influential because they set the legal precedent. And the U.S. Supreme Court only accepts 1% of cases that are submitted to it. So in vast majority of cases, it is the circuit courts that ultimately set the legal precedent uh, when they decide on the appeals. So at the beginning of November... After the official requirement for employees with 100 or more workers was issued, within 10 days of announcement, there was 34 lawsuits, that's a lot, spanning all 12 circuit courts. And so what happened is that on November 12th, you remember the news came out that Fifth Circuit Court, which is like Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, they had put a hold on Biden's order. That was the big news last week. And that set a precedent. And so then, since that point... Since every single other circuit also had a case regarding the mandate, they decided, okay, well, who will now get to say the final word among the circuit courts, right? So this is still not the Supreme Court review. It's more like this is such a huge national issue, you know, and thus you have to have the lottery system to decide who's going to be. So they're just choosing one circuit court to decide for everybody. Yes. Okay. And when it comes to circuit court, um, you get a bunch of district judges, but all of them out of all of them, only three would be selected uh, to then review this case on a supranational level. That's how it works in circuit courts. You have a bunch of judges, but for each case, you have like selection also of the who the three judges will be that will review it. Okay. It seems like the fact that leftist media are decrying, I guess, the choice, like they're not happy with um, with the Sixth Circuit being chosen. Isn't that more fair than just choosing uh, whichever whichever circuit has the most lawsuits? Because I feel like that would be the most natural. And that would be the Texas one, yeah. which is the Fifth Circuit. But it's also the most conservative 
uh, circuit, I guess, of all you could say. They're yeah. also the ones, you know, who initially came out with this. They were hoping probably for ninth circuit, which is us, uh, the whole coast, uh, west coast, mm. right? While uh, you know, conservatives expected fifth circuit to be the one to not just be the first deciding, you know, court, but also the second review in court. That would be the great. But in the end, the conservative sixth circuit won the lottery, and they will get to look at this case on a national level. And most likely it's going to be, what is it, Cincinnati, which is Ohio, right? Yeah, the Midwest. Yeah. Part of the news is that the they are majority Republican president-appointed judges within that uh, court circuit. So what's next? Well, this could mean that they would uh, rule on the issue without a delay, most likely, because they'd be it's in their interest to push, push this ahead. And maybe even before December 5. But the reality is that they are, even if they're quick, you know, to rule the decision, there most likely will be another appeal from the liberals, which means the litigation could continue for some weeks and months because they can continue appealing it. At what point does it get to the Supreme Court? It, at the point where it becomes too too important not to you know look over. And, and each court, including um, Court of Appeals, can always send the case back down to district courts, number one. Won't happen in this case because there's just a ton of them pointing. Like I said, finally, it's possible that the question might end up in front of the Supreme Court judges. As Christians, we understand that the world is facing the consequences of the fall. And although God is restoring his creation through Jesus Christ, those around us who have not come to the saving grace of our creator continue to wallow in the muck of derangement. So it is not surprising if, you know, we look, observe and say and see that humanity is on the way to greater perversion in pursuit of freedom from anything that might restrict its natural desires. Which, of course, those who never been born again considered trustworthy enough to bet your life on. These are the things they hold on to dearly. Give me all the freedoms that my body, my mind desires. And so we see how gender and sexuality is under question and, and continues to be, you know, redefined. It begins with small things. Like, for example, the International Olympic Committee, continuing with the transgender theme, they came out with this statement on Tuesday... According to CBN, in regards to transgender athletes, here's what they said. Provided that they meet eligibility criteria that are consistent with the principle four, which is about fairness, athletes should be allowed to compete in the category that best aligns with their self-determined gender identity. And the criteria to determine disproportionate competitive advantage may at times require testing of an athlete's performance and physical capacity. However, no athlete should be subjected to targeted texting because of or aimed at determining their sex, gender identity, and or sex variations. Now, they argued also that there should be no presumption of advantage in determining whether a transgender woman is eligible to compete. So, so what they said is they're not going to, uh, as the Olympic Committee, they're not going to take a look at it anymore. And they actually pushed it down to individual sports to determine that. That's pretty silly. I just want to make this one point. So even if you were to actually see this through and abolish sex and gender uh, and try to ignore it in anything, like here's the example of competitive sports. You also take social studies or any kind of medicinal research. Mm -hmm. Even if you abolish sex and gender and pretend not to see it, you will continue to rediscover it. There's almost no parameter that you can measure where you wouldn't 
where you wouldn't see a strong correlation between the two sides of, of, you know, what sex you are assigned at birth. Like even in the electrical field, we're learning about what kind of amperage can kill you if you if you come mm-hmm. in contact with it. It's different for male and female. Oh, like really? it's it's something that you you will continue to rediscover it, even if you try to close Ignore your eyes or, to yeah. it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. That's what happens when we try to, you know, like you said, close your eyes on the nature. Nature is going to keep bringing it up. I mean, in fact, I think just life in general, like, look, we divide into countries, we have borders, we divide into, you know, we have walls around our house. There's a reason for that. There's got to be some kind of distinctions. But by expanding, we're going a little too far with it to where it will be meaningless at some point. It's like, well, you know, you just said now there's 75 pronouns. Why not 76? Why not 376 and so on? It just keeps growing. Well, why why should this matter at all? Because slowly but surely, this lays the groundwork for indoctrination or the easing in of an ideology, the slow turning up of the heat. And then it turns into this. So, you know, first it's Olympics. Who cares? It's a comment. Then it turns into this, which also came out this week according to Christian headlines. And I quote, a New Hampshire high school student who was punished by his school for allegedly saying there are only two genders has uh, now sued the school district and its vice principal over a text message. So apparently there was, you know, shown to the principal. So it began in the Spanish class where a classmate who identifies as non-binary had a certain request for pronouns. And then the argument among the kids, the students continued on the bus. Um, And so this girl and a Catholic student were texting. And essentially over text, um, I believe it's a he, uh, he asserted a... um, He asserted his position that there are only two genders, and that ended up being shown to the principal, and the principal suspended, or vice principal suspended, this student uh, for a football game. Yeah, so after he was suspended for one football game for stating his beliefs about gender in a text message to a classmate. Right. That's the background of the story. Here's the excerpt from the lawsuit. The student does not deny that he violated the gender nonconforming students policy, which is a group they have at school. He, in fact, denied and will continue to deny that any person can belong to a gender other than that of male or female. And then later on, the student will never refer to any individual person using plural pronouns such as they, using contrived pronouns such as Z, or with any similar terminology that reflects values which the student does not share. They're adding a non-binary option to the French language and like to the French online dictionary and that's creating really? uh, a lot of controversy you could say because mm-hmm. uh, French people are like almost idolize their language yeah I mean there's no there's no question that this is this is absurd I mean you start off with the conversation in Spanish class probably I mean I wasn't there but probably having to do with how Spanish is a gender language and has been for thousands of years and now this person wants uh, now this person wants uh, the language to accommodate him. But, I, but it, it gets worse when the principal gets involved and then yeah. doubles down on maybe, I mean, I don't know what was in the text message, but like the fact that the principal got involved and like doubled down on it. So in this conflict, who's who's erasing and dehumanizing who? You're changing basically the way everybody personally identifies or, uh, you know, divides into, I mean, tribes, you can say, and to accommodate this one person, or are you changing... Or are you asking this one person to identify within the system that exists to accommodate 99% of the other people, right? That's not to say that uh, people that are going through gender dysphoria are 
are illegitimate or they don't exist because for sure they do. And I, you know, I sympathize. I, but the fact that we all have to conform to it to coddle their expectations of, of, of how they want to be perceived and how they want to be addressed by every single person. I mean, it's pretty nearsighted. But see, it doesn't stop here. It actually continues creeping in into the youngest of minds. And I think this is their next part, because if you are forcefully trying to change right now the older population, uh, you know, with the youngest ones, it's not going to be so difficult if you start early, right? So this is according to Sibiana's of this week. Uh, apparently concerned parents of K-5 through five, uh, students of the West Hartford District in Connecticut had to raise an issue with the school district as... Um, as so many others have to do around the country, they found out from uh, school officials that they cannot opt out from the curriculum that teaches students as young as kindergarten, quote, social emotional learning through an equity lens in which this educational program teaches elementary students a set of social justice standards. Now, that might sound alarming, but maybe not that concerning. Uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, until you look at the contents of this quote-unquote, elementary school social justice lessons standard and mentor texts. So here, here are some of them, uh, according to CBN. Some examples of the mentor text include one for kindergarten students titled Introducing Teddy, a short story about a character named Errol and his Teddy, Thomas. One day Thomas says, I've always known that I'm a girl Teddy, not a boy Teddy. I wish my name was Tilly, not Thomas. First grade texts uh, also include Jacob's new dress that's summarized by Goodreads this way. Jacob loves playing dress up when he can be anything he wants to be. Some kids at school say he can't wear girls clothes, but Jacob wants to wear a dress to school. Can he convince his parents to let him wear what he wants? This is ridiculous in terms of what they want to teach the kids without parents' consent. Who publishes these? That's right. what I want to know. <laughs> Another book description reads... When Aiden was born, everyone thought he was a girl. His parents gave him a pretty name. His room looked like a girl's room, and he wore clothes that other girls liked wearing. After he realized that he was a trans boy, Aiden and his parents fixed the parts of his life that didn't fit anymore, and he settled happily into his new life. Then mom and dad announced that they're going to have another baby, and Aiden wants to do everything he can to make things right for his new sibling from beginning. From choosing the perfect name, to creating beautiful room, to picking out the cutest onesie. But what does making things right actually mean? Effectively, by calling it a figment of the imagination to identify with a certain gender, you're creating a new imagined state where you basically can cross over. And that's not to say that like little boys can't play with dolls or like little mm -hmm. girls can't play with, I don't know, cars. So all all this material is getting published, but it's also, I wonder how much this social emotional learning, basically where you're taught to pander to somebody else's, somebody else's turmoil or somebody, you know, having an identity crisis. I wonder what that's displacing in their, in their emotional intelligence curriculum. Yeah, it, it seems like what they're doing is a social experiment, you know, being conducted right now on our children, on the youngest children. And some social experiences are probably good. I mean, we would have to agree with that. That's some like, I don't know, teaching people to be polite. That's something that you might want to introduce into schools. That's great. We, we should have looked into that, see if we can influence the country in that way. And maybe at some point we did. Maybe that's why America is a little more polite than some of the you know, uh, countries from Europe. Yeah, and, and that's what I see in it, that this type of conversation uh, 
should be happening at home. You know, schools are not for indoctrination, not at least in U.S., you would think, right? That's why my neighbors can raise their kids the way they believe. And I might disagree with them, but it's their right. And my job as a Christian citizen, right, is to shine light, teach my kids right, serve, pray, influence people around me. And, and you know, teaching these things against the will of the parents is a blunt government indoctrination in the lowest sense of the word, which is always done out of self-serving rather than community focused intentions. All right, welcome to Lightning Round, where we get to take a look at the stories that are happening around the world. Uh, 10 to 15 minutes. Our goal here is to bring awareness to some of the stuff. Uh, number one, it's interesting. And number two, we want to offer a quick commentary because it might become a national headline this next week. And there's that. First story, uh, Portugal. And in, um, in the world news, this one caught my attention. Apparently, Portugal right now, here, here's the headline. Portugal bans bosses texting staff after hours. So what they worked on is coming up with this law of right to rest, something like like that. Mm, they're calling it right to disconnect, I think. And the idea is that as companies with more than 10 people on staff could face fines if they contact employees outside of their contracted hours. So apparently that's been a problem for them. They're trying to improve this work-life balance. Yeah, I think, I mean, this is a really progressive policy move. I just feel like there's a lot of jobs that require some level of communication before you show up on the, on the job site so you can work effectively and actually efficiently get things done. Like, for example, working in a lot of blue-collar trades. So, I mean, I don't know the details, but I'm going to past judgment anyway that this is kind of the squeaky wheels getting the grease that people talking about how you need uh, like mental health days and um and things like that which i mean some of that is legitimate but i don't think it should be a law where you get fined for texting your employees i think that like as an employer you're fully in the right to choose when you're on your phone when you're corresponding outside of work i think this is probably in response and i i agree with you but i think it's in response to the uh digital nomads you know since portugal became a place of uh you know where people go to work remotely and plus, I guess the pandemic plays into it. One of the things they say is now parents will be allowed to work at home indefinitely without seeking prior approval from their employers until their child turns eight. This is according to BBC. The idea here, I think, is to deal with what pandemic brought on, you know, of just this constantly being online, I guess, feel that maybe some, I think it's relating more to the digital area of people working. So changing over into the news that has more to do with politics, there's a representative from California, Kevin McCarthy, who took the stand on Thursday and spoke for eight and a half hours straight, which is a which is a record, um, giving a speech against the Democrats' socialist spending scam. That's crazy. He began at 8.38 p.m. Eastern Standard and kept going for, you know, into the Friday morning, which I don't know if you do the math, what is it like? Probably ended at 5 a.m., 4 a.m.? That's a long time. That's and, like... And everybody had to sit and listen. And I actually skimmed through the... It's crazy. That's like a filibuster in the pure classic sense. But like he actually... So like I, I've seen uh, Bernie Sanders filibuster, also pretty mm -hmm. long. But it's like he, you know, he has all their members step up to the podium and all, and all of that. This guy is speaking for eight and a half hours like standing there he's got his notes the only thing i saw him do is take mints i didn't even see him take a drink through the whole time no bathroom breaks no nothing he just stands well at least i didn't see any bathroom breaks it's unbelievable apparently nancy pelosi uh in 2018 used a similar tactic as minority leader uh she spoke for more than eight hours a speech about young undocumented immigrants so that was the previous record for a floor speech now it's eight and a half hours but speaking about the longest speech ever you know i was i looked up apparently there's this pastor in, in us here in florida who spoke for 58 hours 
than 18 minutes on purpose. He preached a sermon that long. So over two full days? Yeah. And he would only take, um, I think, five-minute breaks, restroom breaks mainly. And then there had to be at least 10 people in the audience at all times. So they would take shifts listening. But can you imagine what people are doing? Like, he prepared 200 pages of notes. He had 600 PowerPoint slides and just, I guess, preached through the whole Bible or something. It's something to do with addiction, recovery center, benefiting, something like that. But anyways, the main point is 58 hours. And I and I was listening to, you know, Kevin McCarthy's speech and I'm like, can you even talk for eight hours? I feel like I do two hours, you know, Bible exposition and you're like, you just feel drenched afterwards. Imagine doing that for like a whole work day without taking a break. That is just next level. And if that's what you do for a living, I mean, it, it pays to be good at it. In a world of courts, uh, you've probably heard by now that Kyle Rittenhouse's um, case was dropped, dismissed, mm-hmm. acquitted. I don't know how you say it. Not, not guilty on all not, counts? Not guilty on all five counts. Maybe if you were watching and as more evidence was presented, you'd found yourself thinking, wait, why is this trial even happening? And it's hugely televised. But did you know that as of right now, the there's a really high profile trial of, not sure how to pronounce her name, Ghislaine Maxwell, longtime associate of Jeffrey Epstein. This trial is happening at the same time. And so, I mean, something mm. to look into, I think. The amount of attention that this case got versus mm-hmm. where it should, that's interesting. Apparently, President Biden uh, released a statement on the same day saying the following, this is a quote from the White House website. While the verdict in Kenosha will leave many Americans feeling angry and concerned, myself included, said the president, we must acknowledge that the jury has spoken. And then later he, uh, it's like a short statement about two paragraphs. He said, I urge everyone to express their views peacefully, consistent with the rule of law, violence and destruction of property have no place in our democracy. Which of course the Portland community heard that and said, oh yeah, we got to do the opposite of that. And so they, they rioted all night actually and another state of emergency or riot was declared in Portland that night. I guess we're waiting for Joe Biden's Twitter to get deleted now for consistency. <laughs> well, because he, I mean, he expressed that he's angry. Yeah. So Bill Gates has a company called Terra Power um, that has chosen a town in Wyoming, which was a, a coal town in the in the frontier era. Um, so this is the site where he will be building his first um, nuclear power plant. I don't know if that's a green move or not. Is nuclear energy green? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Okay. It's just the, um, it's actually kind of ironic because a lot of the so-called environmentalists that protest nuclear energy, every time they've stopped a nuclear power plant from going up, they've increased carbon emissions on the global scale by, uh, I don't remember the number, but it's a lot. It's a, Does it come from misunderstanding like how nuclear power is generated? or So the biggest contention they have is with radioactive waste. And so that has to be stored mm. somewhere. Mm-hmm. So like uh, in France, for example, where they use a lot of nuclear power, they will store it in like these abandoned salt mines. Um, and it's that stuff remains radioactive for a long time, but it just has to be sequestered in a place where, where no one will get into it, I guess. So it looks like uh, once built, this plant would provide a base load of 345 megawatts with potential to expand to about 500 megawatts, according to CNBC. For reference, one gigawatt or a thousand megawatts uh, of energy will power a mid-sized city and a small town can operate on about one megawatt. So a huge city, about a thousand megawatts. So this can supply like half a large city of power. It's going to take $4 billion to build the plant with half of that money coming from Terra Power and the other half from U.S. Department of Energy's Advanced Reactor Demonstration Program. So pretty serious grant from the government. But because they're lagging behind, because U.S. nuclear industry is lagging behind, it's something that the government is interesting in incentivizing. The Hoover Dam produces 10 megawatts for reference. So this is uh, 50 times. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is 50 times what the Hoover Dam produces. Or it has potential of producing up to 50 times more. Here's the headline for the story in the world of Christian news. New revised standard version Bible updated with consideration for modern sensibilities. Now, at first I thought maybe this would be something, you know, like changing pronouns or uh, something to do with gender, but really it it wasn't that bad. Here's an example. 
in, in the book of Galatians uh, previously was referred, let's say, to the sons of Abraham as, quote, one by a slave woman and the other by a free woman. Now it will read one by an enslaved woman and the other by a free woman. Very minor difference, right? Uh, they say in the Gospel of Matthew, instead of uh, saying wise men, it will now say magi uh, as the guys who came to Jerusalem after Jesus's birth. Yeah, I mean, I, I see a couple so more examples not, here uh, where it's basically like, do you mesh people's, I, I mean, it was looking at demoniacs, epileptics, and paralytics, and now it's people that are possessed by demons or having epilepsy or afflicted with paralysis. Mm. And so it's it's a matter of, I guess, dis, disconnecting uh, the identity of the person with the issue that they're having. I mean, like, is this a desperate need that is being addressed, or is it just, I, I guess I don't really see the pressing need for this new translation, but hey, it's here. Uh, here's a headline from the Christian world. The Federation of Russia has been added to the State Department list of worst religious liberty violators. Um, so they're joined with uh, Myanmar, China, Eritrea, Iran, North Korea, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia on that tier. The Secretary of State said, In far too many places around the world, we continue to see governments harass, arrest, threaten, jail, and kill individuals simply for seeking to live their lives in accordance with their beliefs. This administration is committed to supporting every individual's right to freedom of religion or belief, including by confronting and combating violators and abusers of this human right. So this is because of their treatment of Jehovah's Witnesses, right? And and also, uh, also some Islamic theologians? Mm-hmm. Because Russian courts apparently continue to deliver harsher and more numerous prison sentences sentences for Jehovah's Witnesses seeking to practice their faith, according to Christian headlines. So, the story, remember the story about Astroworld that we covered last week? If you haven't uh, listened to it, take a listen at our episode 2 of season 2. Apparently, 280 concert goers uh, have filed lawsuits or, well, have been filed on behalf of these concert attendees. And probably hundreds more to follow, according to the lawyers. Not surprising. I think people are probably going to jump on the bandwagon of whether they were hurt in it or not. They're going to take a share of, of whatever, you know, to come out of this settlement. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you made it out of there alive, like, that's still traumatizing. I think they're putting it all together. So what it says is the lawsuit seeks $2 billion in damages resulting from extreme pain and suffering, loss of earrings, emotional distress, and medical expenses, according to CNN. Well, he just has to go to Kylie and she, she can take out her wallet and basically pay it out of pocket, probably. But, I mean, I was looking more into this stuff uh, when we were talking about Astroworld last week, and we could have gone way more into depth. There's a guy called called um, David Patrick Harry that has a that has a channel called Church of the Eternal Logos and he goes way in depth like he had a three hour stream where he was talking about the uh, demonic influences and how Travis Scott is like he connected it with Tavistock which is a whole nother thing that you can look into but yeah there's a lot more that meets the eye here and I intentionally last time if you notice when, when I was uh, closing the episode I intentionally kind of stayed away from all the symbolism because I think that you could, you could dig a lot of stuff in there in fact if you spend long enough time, you could dig out a bunch of symbolism from everyday life. The time could be spent on truly being concerned about deeper issues. And so, in that sense, a separate lawsuit apparently was filed on behalf of more than 125 plaintiffs earlier this week, and they're seeking additional $750 million in damages to, quote, fix, help, or make up for the harms and losses suffered by the people who went there. Among them, the family of Axel Acosta Villa, 21-year-old college junior from Titan, Washington, who died at the event. This next story is in the health category. And so for the second time this year, the United States has an imported case of monkeypox. So there's someone in Maryland who is originally, I guess, from Nigeria, uh, who's been diagnosed with this this dangerous illness. Um, So here's a few things you should know about it. Well, they're saying that there was another case that occurred uh, in Texas in July. That was the first, I guess, case. Mm -hmm. And there was no secondary cases for that patient. 
even though like 200 people were in contact with him, uh, the individual that was being monitored. So I don't know if it, uh, but it's something similar to smallpox. Yeah. Well, there was a, there was an outbreak in 2003 in the United States, apparently. Mm. Um, and like this is, so that was the first time it was reported outside of Africa. Um, there was 47 confirmed and probable cases in six different states. So it was linked to, um, uh, to like exotic pets turned out to be like prairie dogs from Ghana. And for the very first time, it appeared in 1958 in a colony of research monkeys. But the true reservoir of the virus remains unknown. Mm, hence the name monkeypox. Uh, what's what's so weird about it is that it uh, gives you all these boils, like this rash all over your skin. You know, you, you get like flu-like illness, like headache, fever, chills, mm. swollen lymph nodes. But then there's this rash that starts on the face and then spread to other parts of the body. Uh, and then your palms of the hands and the soles of your feet uh, are affected and yeah. it just looks... Scary. You can get lesions that that leave you scarred. So in a, in a world of technology, I thought this was really interesting because we covered the story of Metaverse. Was that last episode? Uh, I think that was episode one. The episode before that, yeah. So Metaverse, the new project of Facebook, you know, looking forward and creating, you know, bringing people into this virtual world. Well, apparently they're continuing. They're driving straight into this virtual reality, according to Cointelegraph, with a preview of its latest research and development of haptic gloves, which give sensory feedback while in digital realms. And, you know, you could search up haptic gloves metaverse and see this video where they're demonstrating that, you know, a person is interacting with objects in, you know, you got your goggles on, but you're, you, the, the gloves essentially allow you to feel the objects that you're picking up by way of restricting, providing like haptic feedback, meaning like vibrations or like clicks, you know, movements in the glove mm-hmm. that make you feel like you're holding an object. Yeah. So like if you grab, like it shows you're grabbing like cubes mm-hmm. and if you, you basically can't move your hand to where it, it passes inside the object that you're holding like it's i'm curious to see like how to feel it right yeah to be able to experience that but it, it's really cool how they developed that one of the things they played is jenga right so imagine playing virtual jenga like we could be in a separate rooms or actually across the world right but like mm-hmm. in a virtual world we're in the same space and now we're feeling it and th- th- this is exciting in a sense because we're developing this new way of interacting with these digital creations that you know i'm a designer right I, most of the stuff i create for the majority of my life including this podcast is all digital right and yet we found ways to experience digital audio digital video digital images and so this is just an extension of that from the perspective of innovation this is interesting and i think from now on you know always once you develop a prototype the idea now is to reduce the uh the ergonomics of whatever you're working with so now it's going to get slimmer slimmer and slimmer technology improves you know and it's just really exciting to see where this is going to go yeah now that they're like i guess the frontier has been broken now it's just a matter of improving what's what's already there so there's an article from bbc news uh, that talked about uh, Tesla drivers that were left unable to start their cars after, um, I guess, a server was down or something in the like, in the smartphone system where they, where I guess, they controlled their car. And so there was about 500 users that reported this error around uh, well, it doesn't matter, it says 1640 Eastern Time uh, on Friday. And so uh, Elon Musk tweeted that you know his apologies that you know we'll take measures to make sure it doesn't happen again. But what it boils down to is that you're relying on basically a server working 100% of the time for you to be able to use your car. 100% of the time. And it affected only, they say, 500 users, about 500 reported. And then on the app itself, there was only 60 reports. But here's the deal. You could always use a key because they, they still come with a key. So it's just the idea that users got so, uh, they, they just relied
rely on technology so much. I mean, because they buy into this whole idea, right? And that's mm-hmm. fine. That's cool. But you kind of still have to have your key for those emergency situations. And I think of it in the same way of uh, door locks, you know? Like, oh, what's going to happen if, you know, somebody hacks into my smart home and locks me out, carry a key? Because every single lock right now that you buy has a physical key option still with mm-hmm. it. I've actually had that happen to me, but with not even with an app or anything, just with like a regular key fob. I guess my battery... In the car? No, yeah, like my battery mm-hmm. in the in the key fob died. And I was thinking about crawling in through the sunroof to get inside my car because... Do like, you have a key in there or no? Yeah, there's a key in there. Okay, I didn't yeah. think of using yeah. it at all. I was just like, oh man, this is not working. It's, How do I get in? And, yeah. and, and I can imagine if you're using an app the whole time to, you know, get into your Tesla and you're like, what? I'm stuck. I'm locked out. Anyways, so don't rely on the technology too much yet. There'll be a time for that. All right. And that's all for the lightning stories for this week. Welcome back to the main segment. We have a couple more stories to get through today. Let's zoom way out into the world of geopolitics. So we had a segment um, last season on the president of Belarus. I think it's season one, episode 12, maybe. Uh, Go check it out for more background on Lukashenko and his character. Uh, We remember that there there was a lot of protests then, um, and the EU temporarily stopped flights into Belarus. Uh, apparently, at the time, they also set up sanctions against against the country, and uh, Lukashenko didn't like that at all. Uh, so he decided to fight fire with fire and invite thousands of Iraqi fugitives to come into Belarus and try to cross the border with Poland and enter the EU this way, um, and their, their final destination being Germany. These fugitives have been trickling in since summer, and they haven't been very successful in uh, at crossing into any of these European countries. If they go to Latvia or Lithuania in the north, they're treated, quote, very badly and not allowed to enter. Um, in the south, Ukraine, uh, which I don't think a lot of them want to go there, but Ukraine is militarizing their border patrol and making plans to dig this, uh, this deep trench I guess they said, I think they said it was four meters wide and two meters deep um, along the border um, to not allow illegal crossings. Uh, But where they actually want to go is west into Poland. And that's where they're, um, that's where the Poland border patrol is hitting them with uh, water cannons, tear gas, and there's reports of other chemicals like herbicides and pesticides. They're basically storming the the customs. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, there's barbed wire fence and stuff. So they're, they're kind of, uh, they're kind of out there too, um, just like throwing rocks at mm-hmm. the at the Polish. Well, at, at this point, it's like a huge police presence, and so there's clashes happening, and and you know the the Polish border patrol basically you know sprays them with stuff, either tear gas or or just water cannons, um, and it's like think about it's almost December now, like it's you get wet outside, and it's it's not like here where you get forty degrees. Mm-hmm. It's. I would compare it the weather to like Minnesota or Wisconsin, where it's like it gets cold up there. Right, right. And we're talking about thousands of people. I, I was just thinking in terms of how grand the issue is. Like we have our own, I guess, immigration crisis, right? Well, we're about to see more parallels, I think, because I mean, this is now Lukashenko denies engineering this crisis, mm-hmm. even though it appears that he wants to benefit from it. So he he's finally uh, was able to get on the phone with the Chancellor of Germany and uh, I guess make demands. Um, he says that he wants to be recognized as a legitimate leader and that, uh, and that they would lift the sanctions that are imposed on Belarus. And so I guess I, on his part, he will deport the fugitives or something. Um, but this whole time, like he's denying that he engineered this crisis and that, you know, he's, he's playing up the idea that, you know, it's we, us Slavs, we have big hearts and, and we just want to help these, uh, these impoverished fugitives to have a better life. 
he can't say they're there because he wanted to spite the EU, but I, mm. I think, I mean, to us, it's pretty clear. Uh, sadly, the fugitives don't have an interest in living there, um, and I don't know if the Belarusians want them either. Well, can I read the quote that I saw that he's saying in an interview? I told them, meaning the European Union, I'm not going to detain migrants on the border, hold them at the border, and if they keep coming from now on, I still won't stop them because they're not coming to my country. They're going to yours, he, t- he said in this interview. But I didn't invite them here, and to be honest, I don't want them to go through Belarus. So it's kind of interesting how he's, he's not realizing the fact, oh, they, they don't even want to stop in your country. Like, they're headed somewhere much better basically like why would we invite fugitives here like they're way more trouble than they're worth (laughs) you can have them and so uh it's kind of funny like isn't it strange hearing that rhetoric from a slavic country because they they haven't exactly been a haven for refugees in the past there was a lot of we tend to have clashes with other ethnic groups Mm -hmm. um, that are in minority or but then again you could argue that soviet union was the, the 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 thing that unified all these you know, ethnicities together or whatnot. Maybe so, but I mean, you have like you have people that are claiming fugitive status even to this day, you know, and and leaving to other countries and out of there. Yeah. And so it's, I guess, it's just an interesting position uh, for him to take. I'm just having a hard time understanding what part of any of this made him think it was a smart move. I mean, talk about shooting yourself in the foot. Like he, the migrants, they they trashed the areas along the border and. Mm. These clashes are creating unrest, like in in the communities and stuff. Now he basically has to house thousands of migrants for the winter, and so I, I was I was telling you about the video comments on YouTube that mm-hmm. Lukashenko went to his neighbor's garden to try to make a mess, but he forgot to take his pants off. <laughs> and so, like that's, I like that should give mm-hmm. you an idea of how people are responding to this, and like everyone sees through it, but he's maintaining kind of this uh, this facade of. I guess just like the the hapless benefactor that that's just out there trying to help people, and then like I was saying, I think there's a lot of parallels uh, between what's happening at, at our border and what's happening in Belarus too, because the real losers are the fugitives um, that are you know they're trying to take an opportunity to enter a place where they uh, they can expect a higher living standard, um, they can expect uh, social programs that'll help them. Uh, they they won't leave you without. You know, without nothing, but they are being used as pawns by these people who um, acknowledge that they need help, um, acknowledge that their their life situation is is horrible. But they are like, but the key here is they are virtue signaling to each other that hey, you should be shouldering this burden and doing your part because these are these are the moral expectations we have for you. Um, whereas both parties in this conflict know that it's going to be too much trouble for them. In the name of resolving an issue that they both pretend to care about, but in fact, they just, uh, they just want to spite each other. What catches my attention is this. We are so well off here in this part of the world. I know we, we say we got a bunch of things going, you know, not the way we'd like to. But let's not pretend that the world problems have gone away. There are tons. I mean, we're talking about thousands of people out there that are displaced because their life conditions are you know, nowhere near... Uh, livable. And I know we're talking a lot about, you know, Middle Eastern men primarily, you know, are the ones who are migrating. And whatever the agenda behind it, there's also a lot of families, uh, you know, trapped in this whole migration movement of our century. So there's there's a lot of unrest, uh, a lot of unsettled people, a lot of people who are restless and cannot find peace in their own countries. And, and so I think we, we need to consider that when we look at our own lives, 
We look at how we live here, what we have, and that should play into the gratitude that we should have for the things that we are blessed with. And also so that we don't forget that the world still till this day continues to suffer, not just uh, spiritually, but we still have physical suffering in the world. You would think by now we have so many people who are billionaires, millionaires, and yet now we, we see that money doesn't really solve the issue. Because if we really wanted to solve it, we probably could have, but something always gets in the way. Uh, logistics, infrastructure, bureaucracies, governments, borders, uh, and yet people are suffering even when on the surface level it seems like the world has moved into a new era of progress and prosperity and next level, right? And yet you still see it from our border, people, you know, going from all over the world into pouring into this country, thinking they're going to find a better life, but unfortunately we're already on the other side of the spectrum now, like we were talking in the previous segment, going into this muck. And same thing is happening in Europe. These are issues that really bite into the reality of our world. What's crucial for us to remember is that although we're in a position where, you know, our country's leaders are are able to play these really complex gambits, we need to remember that it's not always going to be this way. I really hope that we don't find ourselves on the other side of, of those lines of fire, uh, of those border lines where you're looking for someone to help you, but they can't look past their own prospect of gain. So our final story might pertain more to local news, but I'm sure these happenings are not confined to where we live. Uh, so we ask that our international audience please bear with us. The flooding in Skagit, Nooksack, and Fraser Rivers. The international yeah. audience, that's so good. Yeah, everyone listening in Qatar. <laughs> so it turns out that last week... When we mentioned the wetland filling up uh, with water outside of our studio, and I mean, we're, look at, we're looking at it now, the water is still pretty high. Mm -hmm. But um, that was only the beginning of uh, a matter of days where our local river was cresting over the dikes that we built uh, as it snakes through our town. And so the, the Skagit uh, has five dams on it, which they're not meant to mitigate floods, but they still have... Uh, they still have small reservoirs where they can hold back um, a lot of the worst of it, where meteorologists were saying that there was two uh, atmospheric rivers of rain uh, that we got over a matter of uh, a matter of days. I think I think a lot of it happened on Sunday night. So we pretty much got by without major floods in the in the main. I don't know if you call it urban area, but in the in the place where everybody mostly lives, um, while some of the rural areas and roads, um, they're still underwater as we speak. In fact, I was getting coffee this morning, and the and the barista was talking about how her mom's uh, her mom's house is like under three feet of water. They live like in out by Cedro. We we drove around last week, um, just kind of looking at the extent of the flood, like at its peak, and it, it was sad to see that there's a bunch of houses that are you know submerged. Like we're talking about, their floors are ruined at this point. It's pretty sad. We had also friends that that got flooded as well. I mean, at least everyone got. Yeah, everyone got warning about it and was able to get out. I mean, things can be replaced, but as a town, I think we we kind of avoided the the brunt of it. Um, the town of Sumas, which is up all the way by the Canadian border, they they were not so fortunate. Um, did you know that it's built in the bottom of a lake bed mm -mm. and it was drained in the twenties? Dude, that would make sense now. That's no kidding, huh? Yeah, I didn't know that. But apparently, wow. like the the Native Americans, like they would use canoes and go from island to island to like hunt deer and stuff. Where like the town is currently. Yeah, basically what, above it. Wow. Yeah, what we would call the the um what we call the Sumas Prairie, 
So there's like this big plain and then there's there's rolling hills in the background you drive through. It's really pretty. Uh, yeah, that was the bottom of a wow. lake. And so there's like there's these four big pumps um, that maintain the drainage. And so they're they're working nonstop and they pump uh, water basically back into the Fraser River, mm-hmm. um, I guess, in like the lowest part where it where it still kind of uh, builds up. So these pumps, if they stop for 48 hours um, under normal conditions, the lake would fill up. Um, and it would displace something like uh, 3,000, uh, maybe 3,500 residents. This was like in a documentary about, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. it's called The Lost Lake. I didn't know this, um, but sadly wow. these pumps were not able to keep up uh, with the, the weather that we had. And so the extra water, um, I mean, filled that basin. And there was 75% of the homes um, in Sumas experienced flooding damage. And it's crazy. Like, have you seen the, have you seen the drone footage of the, the like flying over basically the, that area? I didn't see drone footage, but you know what? There was a video. Yeah. If you look at that photo, like you probably, I mean, drone footage, I guess showed it better, but like seeing it even from space, just how huge, how, how out of, out, out of its boundaries, the, the river is, is, is kind of amazing in terms of what nature does. As you look at the image, uh, you know, uh, the, from the satellite, it's just crazy how wide and bloated the river is. And with it, you know, the power that, that God gave to the nature to stop the flow of our life as it continues its flow. You know, like we, we can't really do much other than just scramble and wait and hopefully move on. Yeah, I mean, uh, like looking at the stuff is crazy. Even drone footage. I saw pictures of the main street and that leads to the customs office. And so it's it's totally underwater. Mm. Like the gas station where, you know, I've stopped to fill up before the, the ice cream shop where we've been in a number of times. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I had a friend who just sold a house in Sumas that he was remodeling for like a year and he just got rid of it, uh, you know, a couple months ago. And Happy so, for your friend. Yeah. Not so much for the person who bought it. Yeah. Oh, I well, hope, hope they had insurance. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing. It's uh, it's a devastating event mm. uh, for for lots of people. And the, you know, property possessions, um, even like there's a lot of dairy farms out there. There's livestock that, you know, they can't really get food to them in a timely manner. So they're worried about, you know, the, you know, livestock starving um, or, or just, I mean, production going down. Right. Um, but luckily, most people had ample warning to evacuate, and so um, we're able to avoid the much heavier loss of human life, except except for someone in Everson who got swept away driving through a flooded area. I guess when something this rare happens, you realize how like how little we experience on a on a big time scale. So like we've never had a I mean this kind of flood happens every. Um, I think the last time there was a big one was like 1990. That's enough for someone to experience it maybe maybe twice in their life, right? I guess like when a population's lived in the same place for a long time, like there's a lot of wisdom mm-hmm. that's built up in that collective of people. Like, I mean, the stuff that we haven't bothered to really learn because it hasn't been relevant. Like I always think of, um, like in this situation, I always think of driving through water in a car. Like the only thing you have to worry about is like water getting sucked into your engine. And so you have to look at the water line and make sure that your, um, like your intake is not underwater right but it turns out like your car can get swept away in, in running water that's only 12 inches deep and so it was really cool to see people um like sharing that kind of knowledge and you know the community coming together um to help with sandbagging uh people out in boats that are helping their neighbors that got stranded um and even helping collect you know damage reports like going door to door and things like that don't drown turn around yeah, yeah. That's the phrase.
I was going to say about the foot of water that you're talking about. Yeah. So, so we, we just went to check out the property that we're in the, in the process of purchasing. And uh, just to see how the stream that usually is pretty small, how big it is. And it was pretty, it was substantial. It was like, I'd say, eight feet wide mm-hmm. and about a foot and a half to two feet deep. So, and at that point, it's really hard to cross, even if you have boots on, you know, waterproof boots. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's, it's still, it, it was pretty powerful. And it's not like it's, you know, a waterfall kind of stream. This is just, you know, water running on a flat surface. Yeah, it's no joke. And that's something that people don't really realize because we don't encounter it so much these days. But like water rescue is actually a, a really risky thing to do. That's why, I, that's why I think it's so cool that people are out there doing it themselves. And like I know people that uh, came from out of state even to come help with relief efforts that are still going on right now up in uh, Whatcom County. There was also churches that opened their doors to shelter people that couldn't go home. Um, it was really cool seeing people putting aside their differences and, and coming together in an event like this. There was another noteworthy local story about the, the lady driving the red car. Did you see? Yes, that was a crazy story. So she got rear-ended by a semi that I guess didn't see her stop. And like, if you look at pictures of this, the car is unrecognizable. Like, I can humbly say that I can pretty much identify any car on site. Uh, you know, make and model, whatever. But like, just looking at the the pictures in this article, like, I would have no clue. And I, and I would say, if you if you can go and search, you know, Mount Vernon uh, miracle crash or crash I five, and you'll see the car. I mean, it's worth looking. It's like the back wheels folded mm-hmm. in on itself. Yeah, the, the the car is flipped on itself like a like a calzone. Yeah, <laughs> like it's these things happen. And like I've seen worse accidents. I've seen cars get pulverized mm-hmm. and getting rear-ended but mm-hmm. um like but those things always end in fatalities or helicopter rides you know but like this lady walked away from the accident right and so she like they had to cut her out of the car but uh, aside from that like she was perfectly fine right right and so minor injuries grapes and bruises yep it it, it is um it's it and you know and the truck was on top of the car so mm-hmm. not it's folded because of the crash but also the truck remained like the cabin of the truck on top of the car through the whole time. Well, on most of it. Definitely worth seeing the picture. In fact, we'll, we're going to put the picture on our Instagram so you can go check it out. Instagram, Facebook. Yeah. I mean, if you need to be reaffirmed that miracles still happen, definitely look at this picture and check out the article. Well, that's all for the stories for this week. We are so glad you've joined us for another episode of Life Ring. We're excited about this next uh, season. Please consider following us on Facebook. Instagram, Twitter, or YouTube. Uh, all you have to do is just type in Life Ring Podcast. In fact, whenever you forget how to find us, go to Google. Life Ring Podcast, that's us. Also consider sharing it with a friend or family member that would benefit from a weekly overview of the current events from a conservative and Christian perspective. And as always, we would like to remind you that there is no better news on any given day than the good news of Jesus Christ. He died for the sins of the world so that everyone who comes to him would be saved. We encourage you to seek him if you haven't already. Thank you for listening to Life Ring, and we will see you next week. See you.